from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is uh, Monday, December the 17th, 2018. Uh, just a couple weeks left in this year. Isn't that something? Uh, and then it'll be on, of course, to 2019. And uh, it usually takes me until about February to start writing the correct year in my checkbook. But uh, although who, who uses a checkbook yeah, anymore anyway? <laughs> we have a good show lined up for you this morning. Uh, that, that, uh, that person just chiming in there was Colin Mine of BT Digger. He's the news editor there. And he likes to stop by on Monday mornings here. We love to have him uh, to share some, uh, some news that's been breaking over the weekend in Vermont and uh, just get us caught up as we start our week here. And, uh, of course, we also welcome calls from listeners. Uh, 244-1777 uh, is the local number. The toll-free number is 877-291-8255. And, by the way, call in mind. Welcome, welcome uh, this morning. Uh, thanks for coming by. Good morning. And, uh, it's always good to see you and hear what you got on your docket over there at VT Digger. And uh, one story I saw this morning, it was an interesting interview uh, Ann Galloway did with Martha Rainville, a name uh, once heard a lot in Vermont, uh, not so much these days, but uh, Martha, of course, was the former head of the Vermont National Guard. Uh, she ran for Congress as a Republican in 2006, losing to Peter Welch, who's held that uh, lone seat in the U.S. House for Vermont ever since. And, uh, Colin, tell us a little bit about uh, Ms. Rainville's uh, comments on the great series V.T. Digger did recently about the Vermont National Guard. Yeah, so this is the sort of continued fallout from that series, uh, which was reported um, by Jasper Craven and edited by Mark Johnson and, uh, and Galloway. And, um, you know, it went into a great deal of depth about sort of uh, over the past decade and a half almost of sort of misconduct in the Guard. Uh, and not of the sort of rank and file, but of, you know, people who are in very senior leadership positions, the commander of the Air Guard, um, as well as some pilots and senior officers, um, you know, who uh, treated women really poorly, who abused alcohol, um, who, you know, used jets for sort of uh, private dalliances. Um, and, you know, uh, just... So now we're sort of hearing from people who have been involved in the Guard. Martha Rainville was the retired adjutant general, obviously um, quite remarkable in that uh, she is a woman who rose to the senior most position in the Guard uh, when there's a culture very much of not appreciating the contribution of women in the Guard, I believe. Yeah, what, did, what does she make of that? I mean, that, that does seem to uh, sound like a big contradiction there. Yeah. Um, you know, she sort of... You know, Anne, uh, initially, this is an interview with Anne Galloway, our editor, and uh, Anne initially sort of focused on uh, the series that we wrote, and uh, mm -hmm. Martha was sort of uh, hesitant to comment on that because she hasn't been in the Guard, obviously, for the time that much of this is happening. Um, you know, but she was very sort of supportive of the idea that uh, there needed to be more oversight of the Guard, um, you know, and that this was basically fairly consistent uh, with her experience and uh, her sort of understanding of uh, what happens within the Guard and how legislative oversight might uh, change the culture in, inside the Guard. Fascinating stuff. I, I just, I think that uh, that was a great get for Ann Galloway. Uh, Martha Rangel now is, uh, I guess, living in North Carolina, and uh, uh, just to get her on the phone, I think, is a... Uh, is a really smart thing uh, to have done because uh, obviously uh, she, uh, I'm sure she has some, some, you know, and it appears from here, lots of thoughts about this and and the, the role of women in the Guard, being a woman who, as you say, 
rose to the top position in the guard. So, uh, uh, good follow-up interview on on that uh, on that series. Um, yeah, and there's just one more thing with uh, yeah. Martha, and you know that one thing that's sort of uh, a conversation that I think is going to be born out of this is the way that Vermont selects its ad adjutant general, and I, I think that part of the reason that Martha Rainville was able to get to that position is because it's a position that's selected by legislators, so it sort of has a political dimension, um, you know, and pre the sort of rank and file of the guard, uh, or the leadership of the guard don't necessarily have the final say in sort of who gets that position. Um, Governor Phil Scott has said that he would like to see it more like a judicial process where uh, basically there's sort of a board of um, legislators or something like that who select the person they think is most qualified and that's um, appointed by uh, the governor um, so yeah I think in the judicial nominating process if I if I remember correctly they they select uh, uh, they, the judicial nominating board sends three candidates for an opening to the governor and the governor then selects from usually among the three I guess the governor also has the power to uh, you know, reject the list and ask for ask for more uh, more nominees. But uh, and I believe Vermont is the last state in America to uh, actually select their sort of top military official through a political process like that. Yeah, that that is that is pretty odd and clearly is one of those things that feels like uh, you know a remnant of the 18th or 19th century or something here. But uh, another interesting story in VT Digger this morning. I was intrigued here. Uh, employers seek looser drug testing laws after pot legalized. Uh, Vermont's been pretty restrictive on this over the years, so during the era of uh, illegal marijuana. Um, what, are, what are folks saying about uh, why employers need greater leeway here? Yeah, so as the sort of drug laws open up a bit, uh, you've, you know, marijuana is now partially legalized, and it seems like we're on a road uh, within the next year or two to have um, sort of full commercial tax and regulated uh, weed sales. Um, you know, obviously there's still plenty of uh, legal drugs, but then al also the increase in opioid use, um, both legal and illegal. Um, so, you know, as sort of these trends emerge, employers are saying that, you know, the sort of systems that are in place to uh, perhaps prevent people from using drugs outside work um, or, you know, in their lives in general, uh, that those are starting to become more lax and therefore employers should be able to sort of take more extraordinary steps on their own to make sure that people are not uh, under the influence at work. Um, you know, one of the sort of examples of the sort of jobs where this is important is flaggers on roads and things like this, where you really have to be attentive uh, at all times for public safety, you know, not only for your own safety. So yep. um, that, that's that's the gist of this one. Yeah, and I, and I, I, I seem to remember, uh, again, my memory could be a little hazy, because this was years and years ago, but I remember covering the debate at the, late, at the legislature when Vermont uh, adopted its current law uh, on drug testing of, of employees, and I remember there being some discussion of, you know, obviously you want people working at Vermont Yankee Nuclear Plant, which was then still open, uh, not to be stoned, you know. In fact, I would say that's still the case, given there, there's a lot of radioactive material on site and stuff, and huge public safety implications there. Uh, you know, bus drivers, truck drivers, others who... who uh, literally have the public safety you know in their hands i can sort of see uh, but you know one of the things that i remember the debate going to was if you have somebody who uh is a works in a retail and uh and and uh you know runs a runs a cash register at, at a department store uh and they go out a week before and smoke a joint uh a drug test can catch up with the the cannabinoids in their system
and then what? And and you know, there's really a lot less public safety implication for uh, probably the majority of Vermont workers in terms of just what their jobs are and so on. Um, are people acknowledging that and saying there ought to be distinctions here, or is it pretty pretty much a blanket thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly distinctions. You know, we, we spoke to Betsy Bishop, the head of the uh, State Chamber of Commerce, and uh, Matt Musgrave, who's uh, a lobbyist, government affairs uh, person for the Associated General Contractors. Before that, he was with the state realtors. Um, and, you know, they're very sort of... Uh, appreciative of the fact that this may not have to apply to all jobs, but that there should be some discretion for, particularly for jobs where safety is an issue. Uh, Matt talked about the difference between uh, someone who's running the film at a movie theater and someone who's driving an excavator. Um, yeah. You know, and that for certain positions, you're going to want certain sort of rules. I mean, I mean, I think the main issue is just that they want sort of to have a conversation about the possibility of doing this sort of thing, um, you know, and obviously framing it as a sort of public safety uh, issue. And and I suppose by the way, you're, uh, you're, you're dating yourself a bit. I believe that debate that you're discussing happened in 1987. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm dating myself. It's okay. Um, and, uh, you know, that's... Uh, people, uh, people age in place sometimes. You know, I've been here... I, I actually worked for the Associated Press starting in 1985, so that would make sense that I was, uh, I was writing stories about this stuff in 87. The... Um, uh, the, you know, I, I, I just I, I sort of wonder about the about these laws and uh, how well calibrated they are and so on. And I remember people joking that you know if you were a professional, I don't know, a music, musician or a poet or something, and you turned up without cannabinoids in your system, you'd probably get fired. <laughs> but that's, I shouldn't disparage all musicians and poets that way, obviously. But uh, uh, okay, well that that that's a you know, and do, are we expecting to see legislation filed? What kind of chances does it have? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's pretty, uh, some influential folks who want to have this conversation. Um, I, I would say that uh, the sort of inclination of the legislature from what I've seen is not towards more uh, regulation around uh, marijuana and that sort of thing. Um, but certainly you can see, yeah, you can see the conversation happening. I imagine that the governor would be uh, supportive of um, some measures that give employers uh, a bit more oversight into safety. And I think the fact that it's being framed as a public safety issue is obviously a uh, good way of getting more people on board. Oh, and back to the Guard for a minute, because the other thing I, I meant to mention was that uh, the National Guard, that is, uh, that l lawmakers are talking about having hearings on the Vermont National Guard's uh, alleged misconduct uh, described in the recent uh, VT Digger series. Um, what are they talking about doing about these things? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the big issue is sort of the transparency into what's actually happening in the Guard. You know, that there's this sort of idea um, and the main sort of pushback that we've received from Guard leadership to the series that BT Digger published um, the last few weeks is that, you know, they said that they followed the processes in dealing with all of these sort of different incidents, whether it was um, sexual harassment or sexual assaults or, you know, uh, leaving base and abusing alcohol while in dangerous foreign countries. Um, and, you know, everyone's just sort of being asked to take the National Guard its word on this. And I think that the conversation that needs to be had is what exactly uh, the Guard, what, what are its requirements as far as reporting to the legislature, reporting to the administration, uh, what's going on and what they're doing to deal with it, and how can they sort of prove that they're making uh, progress on issues like sexual assault prevention, sexual assault response, 
um, you know, sort of not condoning a culture of uh, alcohol abuse. Um, you know, I, I think the sexual assault is really going to be the main focus, um, obviously, and, you know, just sort of creating a system in which the guard is uh, accountable to, uh, you know, other bodies and that it's not sort of uh, functioning on its own uh, oversight. Yeah, uh, clearly a little bit, of, a little dose of oversight now and then might have actually just created a perhaps different culture and prevented some of the, the problems that the, uh, the the VT Digger series outlined. And uh, so... And yeah, and I think another concern is the sort of involvement of leadership in some of these incidents. You know, that this isn't something... That there's been some sort of effort by uh, Governor Phil Scott and some other folks to sort of paint this as a case of bad apples, uh, you know, a few isolated incidents. But I think when you see, you know, leaders uh, of the Guard, um, people who, you know, are sort of in respected positions, when they're the ones uh, misbehaving, then that uh, becomes... One story, pretty sad, this uh, obituary calling for... A gun waiting period is that mm -hmm. something that? Uh, um, how did? Uh, where did that obituary appear? And tell me a little about that. Yeah, so uh, it showed up in the free press, and I believe elsewhere. Uh, also, the young man's name is Andrew Black. In his twenties, uh, he worked for uh, a local brewery, um, and you know, very sad situation. Apparently, on December sixth, um, he went out and purchased a gun, and I believe the next day he uh, killed himself. Um, and in, in his obituary, you know, his family obviously talked about um, what a kind and caring person he was uh, and, you know, um, sort of his dedication to his job and that sort of thing. And then at the end, uh, they made a call for people to get in touch with their state representatives um, and ask them to push for a gun waiting period law. Um, and the idea of these laws, which exist uh, elsewhere in the country, is to sort of create a cooling off period. So the idea is that people, you know... Um, make impulsive decisions, whether it's to harm others or themselves, and that if you force them to wait, you know, a couple days uh, or even a week um, between the time that they decide to go purchase a gun and, um, you know, the time that they may or may not act on that impulse, that, you know, you increase the likelihood that they're going to change their mind, that they're going to reach out for help elsewhere, um, that someone will be able to intervene in that situation and prevent them from uh, harming themselves or others. And in Vermont, the sort of suicide aspect of this bill is um, a particular concern. Something like 90% of uh, gunshot fatalities in the state are uh, suicides. Mm -hmm. um, so really that is that is the issue here and um, something that I, I think during last year's, because the sort of um, gun legislation last year was spurred by you know, um, Jack Sawyer down in Fairhaven sort of threatening to shoot up a school, that that sort of became the type of incident that people had in mind when they were discussing it. But really suicide is uh, when it comes to people uh, dying from guns. That's That's the main issue that Vermont faces. The number one uh, public safety, public health threat uh, from firearms, and uh, certainly uh, that kind of an incident uh, does speak to uh, possible need for a cooling off period because many, many times episodes of uh, mental illness, uh, severe depression, and that kind of thing, uh, they they do uh, they do come on strong and then they can wane uh, just uh, within a matter of days or even hours. Um, and the person is back to an ability to stay alive. And uh, that is, uh, I can understand the logic there. What are we hearing, if anything, from uh, gun rights groups? Yeah, so uh, the governor, um, who obviously has a complicated relationship with uh, gun rights folks, given that uh, when he first ran for governor, said he wouldn't touch the uh, gun laws, changed his mind on that um, past uh, 
slate of uh, gun control laws last session mm -hmm. uh, says that he, once again, he's sort of back into the position of thinking that there doesn't need to be any more uh, legislation on the gun front um, and that we sort of had that conversation last session and let's give it a break seems to be the message coming from the governor's office. Um, as far as the sort of gun waiting period, uh, the gun rights groups, um, you know, they're sort of talking about self-defense, something that they often talk about, that if you need to run out or if you feel like you're under threat and you need to protect yourself, um, then you should be able to sort of run out and get a gun and protect yourself. You know, I, I think that many people would say, why don't you go to the police? Why don't you, uh, you know, turn somewhere uh, apart from sort of buying a firearm? Um, I'm not sure how uh, much legislators will be hearing that. Um, and, you know, I mean, the Democrats who now control the legislature and can, you know, if, if they can get the party together, they can basically move on legislation that they want to move on. Uh, they seem to really be uh, moving in the direction of having this conversation and pitching this sort of legislation. Phil Baruth, uh, senator from Chittenden County, said that he'll be uh, pushing for a gun control waiting bill. Um, Martin Lalonde, who's a Democrat from South Burlington in the House, uh, also says that he's going to be moving in that direction. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that especially after the lack of uh, sort of political blowback on those who supported gun regulation last year, that there's a pretty good chance that there'll be a receptive audience in the State House to this sort of uh, measure. Yeah, it's interesting. We, of course, um, hear a lot that this time of year in particular is, is a tough time of year for many people. Uh, battling depression because uh, you know the short days and the long nights and the cold weather and and uh, maybe some family issues that crop crop up around the holidays, et cetera, can conspire to uh, create a lot of difficulty that way. I've, I've been seeing uh, just online, you know, Twitter and Facebook individuals out there uh, talking about feeling really, really uh, depressed. I wonder if uh, there's anything that is um, uh, particularly tough about this year. It seems like it's more it's more pronounced than, uh, from what I'm seeing than than in the uh, last few years, but uh, I don't know. Um, the the issue there, of course, is that uh, uh, people, <laughs> I just urge people to, in fact, I had an exchange with somebody on Facebook over the weekend who was saying that, uh, that uh, uh, the problem with depression is that it really knows you, but it doesn't care about you. And, uh, and I, I responded by saying, well, your community knows you and we care about you. And, uh, that's probably obscured by the darkness you're in right now. But just wait, and uh, it'll come back into the into the light before long. So, sure. and if anyone needs to talk uh, to anyone about their own feelings, uh, the national uh, suicide hotline is one eight hundred two seven three talk. That's one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Don't be shy about that. If anybody out there is even having a thought in that direction, that's a very helpful. Uh, service. Uh, thankfully, I've never had to use it myself, but I'm sure that it uh, has saved many lives and uh, and that is uh, that's that's a good thing. So um, and the uh, here we are upon the holidays and I just thinking to myself maybe we should talk about something happier out there. What, what's a what's a good news story and digger? I'm flipping through the, the website right now and uh, the um, well, we have a caller on the line uh, Dick from Waterbury. Good morning, Dick. This is good news. Call her on the line. Yeah, good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, just listening to your conversation there with VT Digger and, you know, the question of possibly putting in a waiting period for purchasing of guns and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an extremely sad situation for sure. 
But unfortunately, you can't legislate everything. You know, if a person is in that state of mind, whether it's a firearm, if they can't get a firearm, then they'll use an automobile. They'll use something else. So, you know, it gets to a point where, you know, you do what you can do, but you can't stop everything from happening. I, I can speak from personal experience as well from a number of years ago, so I'm not totally mm -hmm. immune to the situation, so... Yeah, it's. Uh, I I agree with it. It is a really sad situation. I don't know, really. I, I, you know, I, I think that what the governor is saying may have some wisdom to it. I'm not sure. Uh, Vermont is going to have the stomach this session for another gun control debate. Frankly, after what happened last year, I mean, maybe uh, maybe these things come in come in uh, in in that ma in that manner of sort of having the earthquake last year and the aftershocks this year. I don't know, but. Uh, uh, I, I, I wonder whether there aren't other things that the legislators are going to want to be focusing on. Uh, it, it's always a tough issue. So, yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. You know, but again, you can't stop somebody who is, has a desire to do that, whether it's today, tomorrow, next week, with a, with a, with a firearm, yeah. with an automobile, you know, whatever. Yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, nobody's going to, going to call for a waiting period on a rope, you yeah, know. And you can't legislate your way out of all the problems. So. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Okay. Thanks for the call, Dick. Yep. Um, there, there have been studies showing that gun waiting periods do uh, reduce fatalities, so I think that, you know, perhaps it's true that, you know, Vermont cannot the politicians don't don't have the stomach, like you said, to sort of keep uh, having this conversation session in and session out. Um, but certainly, I think that there'll be some strong arguments made for uh, the fact that this can save lives. Maybe not a whole lot of them, but uh, seems like any lives saved is worthwhile. And uh, what there, we talked a little bit about a couple weeks ago with the uh, upcoming legislative session, Colin. Is this thing coming in any clearer focus now in terms of what the leading issues will be? Uh, we're actually talking to Speaker of the House, Missy Johnson, today to have that conversation. So I think that uh, up until this point, you know, uh, I think people, you know, leaders in the legislature don't necessarily want to get uh, way out ahead of their members and sort of say this will be the issues and that will be the issues because it starts to feel a bit uh, despotic, perhaps, or something like that. But, um, I mean, certainly clean water funding is going to be a major issue and sort of finding a ongoing source of revenue to keep Vermont's lakes clean. Um, minimum wage and paid family leave will most certainly be uh, part of the conversation again. Um, and then there was also uh, Tim Ash, the head of the Senate, um, was talking about um, trying to make some constitutional changes, um, constitutional changes to protect the right to abortion, to protect equal rights across the board, uh, and maybe even having a conversation about extending the governor's term from two years to four years. Yeah, that one is interesting because the... Um uh, well, let's go. Let's go to Ernest from Plainfield. Er, er, good morning, Ernest. Uh, good morning, uh, Andrew Black's death was a true tragedy. But I hope this is more than just a discussion or an opportunity to advance an agenda. Um, do we know why he took his life? I, I I'm not sure. Uh, we've been reaching out to his family. We're hoping to talk to them this week and get a better sense of what Andrew's actual story was here. Uh, unfortunately, I think this conversation may have to continue after the break yeah uh, i thank you for the call ernest we do have to go to a bottom of the hour break for some cbs news a couple words from sponsors we'll be back with more of the uh, can you stay a little bit after the break Colin, or do you need to go a bit okay 
We'll be back with a little bit more of our conversation with Colin Miner, VT Digger, in just a couple minutes. Enjoy the holiday season the way they're supposed to be, with fun, family, and friends. The Warren Store has everything, from fine wines to local beers and cheeses, unique Vermont products, and a great selection of grab-and-go meals and holiday catering. Upstairs, there's a wealth of gift selections and free gift wrapping, too. Relax and sit by our wood stove with hot cider and one of our signature sandwiches, knowing that your holiday shopping list is complete. Yankee Magazine calls us the best one-stop shopping in Vermont. The Warren Store, where funky, friendly, and almost world-famous. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. Heading into the second half hour of our program, I'm, I'm grateful to say Colin Mine says he can stay with us for a few more minutes here. Uh, meanwhile, I believe Ernest from Plainfield is still on the line. Uh, Ernest, back to you. Yeah, still here. What's, what, what else is going on? Well, no, the, uh, reading that article in Digger, and once again, I mean, this is an absolute tragedy. I did uh, see where something like 59% of the uh, suicides in Vermont do uh, use a firearm. What would be interesting to know is how many of those firearms are purchased the day of or, you know, shortly uh, before a suicide is committed. Something else that struck me was the number of suicides in Vermont. Apparently, we're near the top or maybe the top in terms of suicides across the nation. Uh, but once again, getting back to this fellow's uh, death, uh, it would be very interesting to know why he took his life. Somebody doesn't do that on a whim. Something had to be going on. It would be interesting to discover what that may have been. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly one thing that, um, you know, gun rights and not even gun rights, just sort of moderates in this debate often say is that, you know, you can look at guns and talk about gun safety, and that's that's certainly part of the conversation. But there's also uh, another part of the conversation about what drove the person to want to purchase that gun and whether there was anything uh, that the state or other institutions or, you know, families, communities could have done uh, in the sort of lead up to that to prevent them from getting to that point. Uh, you know, obviously mental health is... Uh, a major issue and something that needs to be addressed as well. So hopefully we'll be able to tell that story in the next few days. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. But anyway, uh, thanks for your thanks for your work. All right. Thank you, Ernest, for the call. Yeah, I mean, he makes he makes a very uh, interesting point there that uh, there, are, there are a lot of ways to look at these kinds of stories statistically, you know, and um, certainly that, that, that question of what percentage of Vermont suicides are done with firearms, you can, I mean, the other turning the hourglass over it's when we talk about what is it 90 percent of gun deaths in vermont are suicides so but those really measure a couple of different things and and it's amazing how a statistic like that 90 percent of gun deaths are suicides uh or wait do i have that right or is it 90 yeah. percent yeah yeah and uh, he said what 59 percent of suicides are are with firearms that um so you can you can kind of use these statistics in a way to make your point and uh um, but you have to look. You have to look at them from a wide variety of angles. Let's go to John in Chelsea. Good morning, John. Morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. I'm, I wanted to talk a little bit about the drug testing, but I wanted to just throw a personal experience in about gun ownership. I am a gun owner, and I don't pass the uh, background check, the instant background check, usually right away because apparently there's somebody with my name elsewhere in the country. That's kind of what we figured out. Oh. Jeez. I, I, I'm kind of forced into a waiting period, and it's never been inconvenient. I've never been going to the store and want that deer rifle. I'm going to go shoot that deer, you know, this afternoon. So mm -hmm. just just my personal experience is that, you know, I don't, I don't know that a waiting period would, would ever affect me uh, in a negative way just because I've kind of been forced into it. 
Um, I know other people feel differently about that. But going over to drug testing, um, uh, I'm a truck driver by trade, and I've been getting tested, you know, every year and randomly forever. Yeah. Um, program that really started uh, around, uh, it was supposed to hit a lot of different areas in transportation, like taxi cab drivers and light van drivers, and really just hit the heavy truck drivers and the, and the, uh, and the um, railroad employees. Uh, they, that was really all that they could push on. Um, and I'm sure it's had some positive effects, but uh, I look at my community, and over the years I've seen a, uh, a counselor uh, at our school who I'm pretty sure showed up stoned every day and another person who was a nurse, and they several times are convicted of stealing drugs and using them. Um, and how about, you know, all these people that are driving little delivery vans, they're not tested, and your Uber driver and your Lyft driver, and and then I can't, you know, I don't, do drugs anyway, but I can't smoke a joint uh, on my summer vacation because I'll test positive 30 days later. So yeah. just thinking, you know, you're talking about, you know, critical components, but I, I mean, aren't my, should, aren't my teachers, I mean, wouldn't I not want my teacher to show up, teach my kids stoned or work? work? I, I, I think certainly, ideally, uh, no one would be showing up uh, to work stone for any job. Um, I mean, and I, I think teachers certainly fall into that category. The question's sort of, uh, I think what employers are going to be pushing is sort of for some discretion on jobs where, you know, people's lives are really on the line. I mean, it, certainly education is terribly important, and uh, you don't want people being educated by people who are stone necessarily or not educated, and as the case may be. Uh, but whether or not it sort of puts someone's immediate safety on the line, I think, is the question. Can Vermont employer not require testing? Uh, I believe it is actually restricted in terms of what employers can. If the uh, and if the uh, again this this memory now would go back to 1987, as Colin pointed out. What do you you've uh, have you refreshed uh, yourself on this, Colin? What's what's the current standard? Okay, so um, employment is pretty standard across the state now. I'm sorry, say that again. I thought pre-employment was pretty common across the state now. I, you know, I, I don't know, actually. I, I, um, I take a look at the job ads and yeah. must pass alcohol screen seems to be pretty prevalent. Yeah, I guess it depend. It really does depend on the field you're in to some extent. I've had now, you know, three, three jobs in the media in Vermont and none of them has ever tested me. Yeah, and I think part of it is uh, post-incident testing where if something occurs, then you can sort of follow up with a drug test to find out whether or not that might have been uh, part of the issue and I believe that at the moment that is not allowed uh, and that that's one of the things that uh, employers will be pushing for here. Well, with, tr with truck driving, we're, we're pre-employment and random and post-accident and actually, I'm, I can get tested even if I had an accident in a car. They can require a post-accident even though I'm not driving a truck. Hmm. So we're held. A, I, I I would love to, for you to do a program on this because I thought there were there was very little restriction in terms of pre-employment and random in the state. So that's a good idea. I'll yeah. look into that. That's an interesting thought there, John. Facts on it. Alrighty. I thank you for the call, John. Nice chatting with you. Hey, uh, I'm going to let Colin mind go so we can get down to VT Digger uh, and. Uh, get to their morning news meeting. Colin, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Yeah, and we're in the middle of a funding uh, drive here, vtdigger.org. Uh, you know, if you got a few dollars or you got a few thousand, uh, head on over there and send them our way. Hey, uh, you know, uh, second the motion, VT Digger is doing such valuable 
journalism in Vermont. Uh, full disclosure, I, I do work there part-time, draw a small paycheck from that. and and But but leave that aside for a moment if you can, folks. Separate it out and just look look at the website and see what you think. It, they, they're doing terrific work, and uh, a lot of the funding for that work is based on your donations. So uh, don't be shy. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Colin. We'll talk to you uh, later today, I think, when I get down there. Alrighty, and we are... Um, uh, going to a little bit of just uh, some some national news. Uh, obviously, a lot of discussion about uh, what's been going on lately in the various investigations uh, surrounding uh, President Trump and his team. And uh, I actually had an e- interesting email exchange this weekend with a listener about some of this stuff. And uh, the um, the point of the email, or a couple of emails I got from the same person, uh, a lot of stuff about uh, whether uh, whether the media are overplaying this stuff compared to uh, campaign finance violations that were found uh, with the Obama campaign uh, b- back in the 2008. Uh, there was an audit later on after the campaign. Uh, the FEC ended up uh, fining the uh, 2008 Obama campaign. I believe it was $375,000. Uh, I, and that was one of the largest ever fines issued by the FEC against a uh, against a campaign. The um, uh, that was a, a, a civil fine, however. So the uh, I think there's a difference there. I mean, one of the things I I said to, to this gentleman who was emailing me was that the uh, the legislators and judges, in this case, with the FEC and campaign finance violations. Would, that would be Congress, um, use their, presumably, their judgment about what, uh, what, what actions, what, uh, what violations are more serious than others. That's why, you know, some crimes carry much stiffer penalties than others do. Uh, some, some things that people do don't even rise to the level of a crime. They're, they're labeled a civil violation, and uh, that's generally considered a less severe problem than a criminal violation. And so... Uh, he asked me basically which is worse this uh these campaign finance violations by Obama in 2008 and and uh, or the uh payoffs to Stormy Daniels and uh, Karen McDougal the two women with whom the president allegedly had affairs and the um my answer to that was I'm not qualified to say which is worse but certainly legislators in this case congress and uh, and judges are are paid to make those kinds of decisions. They uh, they are they decide what kind of a penalty a violation gets. And if something's just a, a civil violation, then apparently they think that's not as severe a, a problem as a crime. And so, and the other aspect of it was he was essentially getting on the media's case for not vigorously reporting right now the uh, Obama campaign finance violations and. I, I sort of had felt an uh, urge that I, I succumbed to, I guess, to issue a reminder that uh, the word news, I think, implies new. You notice the similarity between the words new and news. And uh, these Obama violations were 10 years ago. He also mentioned the uh, Lincoln bedroom, the Clintons were, were having major campaign donors allowing them to stay in the Lincoln bedroom at the White House. And, uh, and again, 20 years ago, uh, the Obama thing 10 years ago, um, I think that the media are generally working pretty hard, focusing on what's going on these days, and uh, 
probably just don't have as much energy to go after stories that were breaking 10 years or 20 years ago. But that's just me. Uh, appreciate any thoughts from listeners out there. Uh, do you think that the media ought to be treating as breaking news, something that happened 20 years ago? Um, a new report for uh, the Senate uh, that provides the most sweeping analysis yet of Russia's disin- disinformation campaign around the 2016 election found the operation used every major social media platform to deliver words, images, and videos tailored to voters' interests to help elect President Trump and worked even harder to support him while in office. And a uh, fascinating uh, uh, report here. It was done for the, uh, it was, uh, a draft of it was obtained by the Washington Post. It's the uh, first report to study the millions of posts provided by major technology firms to the Senate Intelligence Committee, led by Senator Richard Burr, Republican of North Carolina, uh, and Senator Mark Warner, the ranking Democrat on the committee. The bipartisan panel hasn't said whether it endorses the findings. It's, it plans to re- release it publicly, along with another study later this week. And uh, I think what's new here is just... Uh, how all the thoughts of uh, Russian meddling. Now, this doesn't. Uh, I'm I'm not talking right now about whether the Trump camp the Trump campaign was involved or to what degree it was involved or was, was it cheering it on, cheering this activity on. Was it uh, providing ideas and some some type of instruction and try this uh, as one technique or that kind of thing. Um, so, I don't I, I don't see the uh, the the real definite collusion here. Just uh, certainly not as uh, described in the top of the story. But Russia seemed to have a strong, strong interest in getting Donald Trump elected president. And as it says here, supporting him once he was in office. And uh, and I think that uh, that is uh, that is a very interesting fact in, in and of itself. And, uh, and the main thing about this report, I mean, I think what's really new here is that a lot of people who have been following these investigations have, uh, I think, a general idea that... that uh, that Russia was trying to uh, meddle in the election to some extent, and the um, uh, but this is a this is a really comprehensive report on the many different ways they were doing that, and uh, well worth having a look if you can find it online in the Washington Post uh, story uh, headline that I'm looking at uh, here is um, the new report on Russian disinformation shows the operation's scale and sweep. And uh, that is a lot of scale and a lot of sweep there, folks. Uh, it's really pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, and I, and I think I think somewhat scary. And and, and listen, I don't. Uh, if if Hillary Clinton had gotten elected in 2016, and uh, this this news was coming out about how Russia had had done an awful lot to get her elected, I would be uh, pretty much as offended <laughs> as, in fact, as much offended by that uh, that development as uh the this apparent fact that Russia was supporting the election the election of president trump uh, i i don't i don't really think who ends up getting elected is the issue here as much as uh just the fact of russia trying to run our elections for us i think that is really really scary and uh obviously i i also wish that the politics of it could be removed to the extent possible i don't know if it's ever possible to completely remove the politics from a situation like this but the uh, politics uh, could be removed and the uh and the and the and the merits of the thing be be looked at 
we've got to prevent this from happening in 2020. I don't care if it helps the Democrat or the Republican or Bernie Sanders is running as an independent or who, but we got to stop this idea that a foreign, longtime foreign adversary of the United States is uh, really working to try to influence our elections. That is very worrisome and uh, should be uh, <laughs> should be corrected by whatever means uh, we can we can apply to it. So. Uh, any thoughts listeners have out there? I'm more than happy to hear them. Uh, 244-1777 is the local number. The toll-free number is one 291 8255 I'm curious to know what folks think out there about uh, whether Vermont needs to uh, increase the ability of employers to do, uh, do drug testing in the state. I think uh, I may be a little hazy on exactly the extent to which that's... Uh, uh, that's allowed or limited in Vermont right now. I'm going to find some folks to talk to about it and see if I can get them on the show sometime in the very near future to talk with us about uh, how do the what, what is the current status of the of Vermont's uh, drug testing law and uh, what what uh, what might need to be changed about it and that sort of thing. So should be uh, should be an interesting topic in the legislature upcoming. Obviously, people are trying to figure out the way forward now that Vermont has this sort of halfway or semi-legalization of marijuana going on and is talking about a retail market a la Massachusetts, Colorado, other places. Uh, we have a caller on the line, Ruth from Sheldon. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, Dave. How are you doing? Oh, a little under the weather today, but oh, sorry to anyways, hear that. I'm a newsaholic. I love the news. Uh-huh. And, um, but I have turned it off. I'm not listening to it anymore. I've been a week and a half without listening to it. Wow. And I'm, I'm much happier. <laughs> um, Maybe that's the solution to seasonal depression. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, I heard something. That I know it's not original, but I heard, does the media hate Trump more than it loves the country? Because that's the way I see it. The media keeps saying all these horrible things about Trump. But they're the ones saying all the horrible... I see the hate coming from the media, not from Trump. And you become defensive. You want to defend yourself. You're just bringing us the news. Well, no, you're being very hateful. And the people can't stand it. And so they're not listening anymore. So if that, if that was your goal, you have succeeded. Well, you know, Ruth, I must say that uh, that I worked in the mainstream media for a long time, and uh, and the, and the goal was not to express hatred for any politician, and the goal was not to engender other people's hatred for a politician. The goal was to, the goal was to always to try to find out what the powerful people, including elected officials, were up to, and uh, and express that or keep the American people informed about about that. Well, every day there's a new scandal about horrible, horrible Trump, and um, and but then two days later it's it's nothing. So you know they're just upsetting the American people. But don't listen to me. Don't listen to the people who call in and complain, because um, you're right. You're just giving us the news. You're not being hateful at all. Merry Christmas. Okay, you too, Ruth. And, uh, you know, I, I do hear that quite a bit, and I must say that uh, it's, uh, I, I, I'm not happy that, that people are feeling like they need to turn off the news or that somehow the news media are, are failing them. Uh, I remember a couple of weeks ago when uh, the um, NAFTA 
replacement deal was was uh, finalized. Uh, there were folks in the news media who were calling that a win for Trump. I think I did on this show too, and uh, and I think because that's the way it looked to the reporters covering that stuff. And so it's I don't really I really don't think it's the case that it's always just a matter of hating on Trump. It's a matter of trying to report the news. And if a particular president of any party I mean, I've said this before, that if Bernie Sanders had gotten elected in 2016 and were beha- behaving in some of the ways since then that Trump has been behaving, I, I'd be just as critical of Sanders. I really would, because uh, uh, I, I really think it's more a matter of, the, of the, what the person is doing, how they are behaving while in office, what, what kinds of policies are they implementing. So if there's uh, stories that you see about family separation at the border, and about a lot of people being upset about that, that's because that's what's going on, folks. It's not because we hate Trump. So let me go to another caller, Gene from Barry. Good morning, Gene. Uh, if, if Trump is so popular, why is it the majority of the people are against his presidency? Well, I was on the news, I think, this morning or yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The popularity, um, and his popularity, his thing is only 38%. That's not the very high. The popularity of the people was over 50% that are against his presidency. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them said that they believe he's lying about the uh, uh, the campaign, you know, uh, when they were having the campaign. Yeah, well, that's certainly... Um, these polls, again, these polls out there try to be accurate. I mean, they would lose yeah. their... They would lose their market share and their well, course, their money if they, if they were perceived to be consistently inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember... How he was praising uh, when he first in a year. How we was praising about the stock market was uh, uh, going up, up, up. After that, it started going down, down, down. Yeah. And most of the time now, it's down more than it's up. Oh, uh, don't don't remind me. I, oh my God! I tried to settle, so, set aside but it a said little bit. The majority, it was over fifty percent. I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that uh, believed he was lying. Uh, you know about the uh, uh, campaign. Uh, with Russia, and if they said well, his name is not on, but everything is there for um, Hillary, well, somebody had to put it in there, right? That is true. Yeah. All against. So, if it's a, if it's against Hillary, it would have to be for Trump, right? That would make sense. <laughs> All right. So you've got to figure things out for yourself, not necessarily by the news or whatever, you know. True. Hey, uh, Gene, I got to go to a top of the hour news break here. I appreciate your call. Have a great day. We will uh, be back after a a top-of-the-hour break here for some CBS News and be talking to Kevin Christie, chair of the Vermont Human Rights Commission. Holiday shopping. Remove the stress. Come to our almost world-famous Warrens store for the best one-stop shopping in Vermont, according to Yankee Magazine. In addition to our amazing clothing collection, you'll find a treasure trove of goodies for everyone on your list. Toys, cards, jewelry, leather goods, scarves, hats, gloves, puzzles, candles, and always free gift wrapping. Have lunch in our rockin' deli. Relax and enjoy your shopping experience. Located in Warren Village in the beautiful Mad River Valley, a day tripper's dream destination. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Back for the second hour of our program on this uh, Monday morning, uh, December the 17th, it is, 2018. And uh, we'd like to go to one of our national correspondents this time of the show. I believe it's Bob Nay this morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Dave. So what, what have we got out there? This Washington Post, 
Post story is pretty amazing. Well, the uh, well, yeah, you mean on the Russians? Yeah. Yeah, they broke it down. Now the whole report's coming out from the Senate, and they haven't. The Senate hasn't officially endorsed it, but they're going to release the report. It was a two-path uh, situation that Russia took, according to this report. One was um, having these, you know, fake accounts supporting Donald Trump. And in the right-wing blogs they created, the Russians, uh, the vast majority of the time, would mention the candidate's name or Trump's name. And in the left-wings that they created, they wouldn't mention, uh, you know, Hillary's name just 1% of the time. Then there's a kind of a conclusion in here, which is kind of interesting to me, Dave, and that it says that the second part of all of this was not supporting Donald Trump, but to make polarization, polarization of the American community of citizens. And frankly, I think we do that on our own in Facebook pretty well without the Russians. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's just it, saying, you know. No, I know what you mean. It, it sort of uh, depends on, uh, you know, how much of this you blame on ourselves and how much you blame it on uh, the Russians. And then the question of becoming, you know, where's the synergy between the two? Right. So, you know, then there's another thing I looked at on this report, just thinking about it is what do you do about it? How, how do you go through Twitter and you, and you have, you know, the ability to say what's a fake account or not or what's real or not? I don't know, you know. Um, how much did it actually influence the election? It shouldn't be done, but, you know, it didn't, you know, they didn't uh, stop Hillary somehow from going to Wisconsin. She stopped herself. You know, I mean, yeah. no, I, I, out I, there. I, I know what you mean, but I, but I think on the, the you know the, to counter that a little bit, I, I think it's kind of worrisome when you have a longtime adversary of the United States that is basically trying to influence in our, our election. And, and frankly, I, I said a few minutes ago before the break that uh, I don't care whether it's influencing it in favor of the Democrat or in favor of the Re- Republican. I, I just think that the, uh, the the fact that they were they were doing this so uh, so thoroughly. Uh, and and also that it seems to have been some, somewhat successful. Now, now, granted, there were there were some forces at play here uh, in, or in the case of the non-trip to Wisconsin, forces not at right. play uh, that also contributed. But but uh, you know, it was a it was a big win for Russia. Oh, and and I agree with you. I mean, overall, like when. You know, people have said that, uh, you know, and I say the thing about Wisconsin because, you know, Hillary Clinton had her own things that she did that made her demise. But even putting that aside, you know, for example, would Donald Trump have won without the Russians doing anything? Most likely, yes, because of the Electoral College. But it still doesn't make it right what, you know, if a foreign nation interferes. You know, it still doesn't make it right that uh, that they're allowed to interfere like that in an election. And, and excuse me, Donald Trump. Uh, you know, in a different world, he might be out there saying, mm-hmm. "Look, I'm really angered that the Russians did this because I don't want my presidency and the hist- and the historical record of it to be tainted this way. Mm-hmm. I want people to perceive that I, you know, I got elected uh, in the in the fair and usual way." Uh, obviously with a boost from the Electoral College, but okay, that's the way it works in the United States of America. End of story. But if if he goes down to the history books with a big asterisk next to his name, uh, you know, got a, got a big got you know big support from Russia in his election effort, 
then um, then that just looks different. And and I I you know if I were the president in his shoes right now, I would be saying, you know, not not only am I angry about what happened in 2016, I'm going to do everything I can and steer the government toward doing everything it can. Uh, within you know the Constitution and so on, right. to try to prevent this from happening again. That's correct. And um, and and the fact that he hasn't been doing that, I, I just think looks weird. <laughs> right. Well, it does. It really does. Uh, it, it's just it's a silence that says a lot. I think. Yeah. And 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 uh, I mean, <laughs> then the question is, well, what does it say? What's that a lot? And mm-hmm. and that's that's what I think is uh, still up in the air and is what's creating this huge cloud of, uh, of uncertainty and doubt around the whole Trump presidency. Uh, you know, right. I think that's, that's my own sense of the situation. And again, and again, I, I don't think that as a matter of, you know, his place in the, in the history books, I don't, I don't think it's doing him any favors. Well, that's true. And then plus all the disruption. I mean, I was just, uh, they have this poem, uh, the night before Christmas that they say at the white house, you know, uh-huh. They did it this year, and um, if you listen to it, it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> Things I forgot about over the past year that you and I have talked about, but it seriously is exhausting huh. and and such turmoil. Who do, who does this poem? Uh, it's a reporter. Oh, um, I see. And he does it every year. I can't remember his name, mm-hmm. but it's uh, they didn't find it offensive or anything, but it just went through. <laughs> everything that you and I have talked I about. I might have like, to look that up, you know. Yeah, maybe. look it up and listen to it, and you'll be like, at the end of it, you'll be like, wow, okay. Yeah. Wow. I may, may have to do a Christmas reading on Christmas Eve or something here on the Dave Graham Show. It might be, be my revenge for having to work on Christmas Eve. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, that's uh, that's my my sad t- story to tell. Let's see. what I'm uh, looking through your other headlines here, Bob. Uh, the... Um, the 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 kingdom rebukes the U.S. Senate. Uh, clearly, the Senate was uh, rebuking Saudi Arabia last week, and so Saudi Arabia has issued an unusually strong rebuke of the U.S. Senate, et cetera. Tell us what's happening here. Well, they sure did. They they aren't happy because of what the Senate has said about Mohammed bin Salman, and also uh, that we're cutting off, trying to cut off money, you know, for them for the Yemen war that they want us to sponsor. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rare rebuke that the kingdom throws out there to us. But then at the end, though, they still say they want to deal with us, of course, because, you know, they don't want to be cut off from our military supplies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I still think there's pressure with Mohammed bin Salman eventually around the world. They've got to see what where they want to be with this. I mean, everybody knows that he was behind the murder. Yeah. Everybody. Yep. And I don't know why the Saudis think they can just wait till it goes away. Well, 9-11 went away. You know, I mean, that's the amazing well, that's thing. that's true. You know, this yeah. got more attention than 9-11. Isn't that, isn't, the Saudi role in this murder got, has gotten more attention than the Saudi role in 9-11. Sure. And Absolutely. I, and I find that just astounding, frankly. Well, I mean, if the, look, if there had been 19 Iranians on those planes yep. on 9-11, this yep. would have been a different response. Different animals. So it was 19 Saudis, and then they flew the Bin Laden family out within a couple of hours. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, it's amazing. That is, uh, that, 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 that tells some kind of a story, which I, I don't think anybody's gotten to the bottom to yet, of yet, really. Correct. And, Correct. and uh, so, uh, wouldn't that be something? Um, and the, let's see, 
president is isolated on the shutdown, this other headline you have here, and I thought that was fascinating. I had a friend call me up this weekend and say to himself, or say to me, we have this president who says he's, you know, the world's greatest negotiator or, or whatever, and within about 30 seconds of their conversation last week, Chuck Schumer was able to get him to acknowledge that if the government does shut down, it's all his fault. Right, and uh, the president's alone on this one. I mean, the reality of it is that it's only 25% of the government. That's yeah. the reality. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And then he holds firm, quote, to try to build his wall, and he's willing to shut the government down. And everybody's here for the holidays doing other things and not paying attention. <laughs> so it's, it's all kind of going to it's going to come and go and go away. Yeah, I don't think it's an earth-shattering thing either, but it is. Right. It is just sort of uh, this whole set to, and I and it, you know did not get the uh, the new relationship that has to happen be- somehow between a Democratic U.S. Oh, no. and the president off to a great start. So yeah, that crumbled day one. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. <geez>. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Bob Nay, I really appreciate you joining me Thank this morning. You sound like you might have a little cold. I hope you is that I right? I do. I yeah. You know, I never get one, and I after. Oh, my goodness, 10 or 15 years, I've got one. So I'm hoping I get rid of it. Yeah, we'll do that. That would be a good thing. So uh, okay. it's good talking with you. I hope you feel Thank better. Thank you. You too. Okay. Uh, Dave from Burlington is on the line. I hope you can be uh, a little on the quick side because I do want to get to this other topic. We'll be So what's going on, Dave? I'll be brief. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, one of my reasons for listening to your show is to hear people who disagree with me, people who think Donald Trump is a great president. Mm-hmm. Um and I would just um, uh, ask, have you followed this story about all-county building supply? Ooh, I, it this rings the, a bell, but go ahead. Yeah, the, this, this is the shell company set up by Donald Trump's father to pad the receipts for improvements made to his 10,000 apartment buildings in New York. And what he would do is... Uh, pad the receipts and then show that as evidence that the rents should be raised because of all the money he had spent. Hmm. Me- meanwhile, and you know, you can you can look at this in the New York Times. Uh, yet another story appeared about it on in the Sunday Times. Yeah, all I missed the latest buildings. one. Uh, the, the first one is a few weeks ago. I, they made mention of this and a terrific yeah. story about family finances. So, so this is a st- this is a, a scheme to fraudulently raise rents by showing higher numbers than actually happened for uh, repairs. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the Trump family would negotiate hard for uh, cheap boilers to put in the properties, but then they would use a shell company that they set up called All County Building Supply to show a higher figure than they actually paid and thereby be able to raise the rents higher. And those people who live in the apartments or different people who now live in them are still paying more rent than they would otherwise have been uh, able to be charged legally. Were these rent, rent the control staff, departments? Uh, yeah, because uh-huh. uh, the rent control, well, the, the, the story goes into loads of detail. But as I understand it, it um, if you have, uh, the, if you can show receipts for repairs, you can raise your rent by a certain amount, and the higher, you, the more you spend on the buildings, yeah, got it. The more you're legally able to raise the rents. Yep. So you know, if somebody likes Trump's policies, that's great. We can have a disagreement about that. Mm-hmm. But it's the cruelty and the criminal behavior 
that bothers me. And with that, I'll get off the phone. Thank you so much. Thanks for the call, David. Uh, all right. I want to go to our next guest. Uh, uh, John Crock is a uh, archaeologist at the University of Vermont, and he kindly uh, to uh, kindly agreed to come on the phone with me this morning on very short notice to talk about uh, this amazing story that uh, National Geographic has published. Uh, the headline is Untouched 4,400-Year-Old Tomb Discovered at, uh, tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, uh, John Crock, uh, Saqqara, Egypt? Hi, Dave. Yes, that's, that's correct. And I, I'll preface this by saying I am not an Egyptologist, but mm -hmm. uh, like everybody, I'm really excited whenever archaeology pops up in the news. <laughs> Boy, it seemed to pop up with a bang this morning. And they have a terrific photo here. National, of course, National Geographic is known for its great photography. And uh, there's this gentleman walking uh, along with a walking stick in the tomb uh, with some artwork on the wall that looks just amazingly well-preserved. Have you seen this online? Yeah, and I think that's the most exciting thing about this, the preservation of some of the, the paint and the inscriptions on the wall. And they're, they're saying that, you know, in, in addition to kind of identifying who this individual was, it's a lot about daily life and things that you might not otherwise get. And some of that's, that's where a lot of our information about how um, the lives of people were 4,000 years ago come about, in this case, from these panels of, of really detailed artwork. And you, and you think about that that date on, you know, just on the, uh, I, I don't know if the proper term is a calendar, but... But, uh, you know, this, this get, gets us back to, uh, you know, biblical times, basically, and, and it gets us back to uh, a period when uh, folks are, are, I mean, this is real antiquity, way, way past the, uh, you know, as far, farther, earlier, more early than the Greeks, I'm tripping on my words here, uh, uh, earlier than the Greeks, you know, the, the flowering of Athens to, uh, if I have my math right, that we are later than the Greeks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this is uh, this is about a thousand years earlier than King Tut, who, are, who folks are likely familiar with. Yep. And just it's in the fifth dynasty, which comes right after the the fourth dynasty is when some of the great pyramids were built in Giza. Um, and this location is about ten miles south of uh, of that, um, but in a broad area that's a, you know about ten miles long. That's a what they call a necropolis, which is basically a huge uh, cemetery area for royals, and you know there are a number of, of tombs in there that, that uh, have come up. But one of the exciting things about this one is it's untouched. There's been a lot of looting there for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, mm -hmm. where these tombs have been raided, and then when they're opened up, they get exposed to the elements, and some of these, you know, the features like the paint and other artifacts get removed, and and they deteriorate. But this one seems in pretty great condition. Yeah, that 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 is uh, one of the, uh, maybe the sweetest thing about it in a, in a way that it is so well preserved, and I and you know the other thing that I wonder about this I mean I'm I'm, a, I'm not an archaeologist at all I just a fascinated reader of this story basically, but the um, uh, this this sort of I mean tell me give us again this idea of where this fits in in the chronology with the, uh, the you know the building of the great pyramids and so on. Well, it's about, let's say, about uh, 100 years or so um, er, after the Great Pyramids were built. So right around that same time where okay. these dynasties were really getting rolling. And some of the things that come out are about this particular individual was 
was apparently a royal priest, and so you had these elaborate tombs, not just for the royal family, but also for their attendants and some, some high-ranking, well-connected individuals. You know, it just gives us a view of how stratified this society was. You know, you had multiple levels of royal you know, levels of society, and then you and then you get down, of course, to the, the less fortunate folks who were building some of these tombs and pyramids, and uh, including slaves. And so this is this individual was a high-ranking priest, was a supervisor, um, and they said, you know, one of the hieroglyphs said that he was the inspector of the sacred boat, which would have put him right in the in a position to direct funerary rites and things like that, which were extraordinarily important to the royals because they believed that they had you know extensive afterlife um beyond and that's what a lot of these a lot of these tombs speak to yeah that's it it, it, it is amazing now, now one of the things that i wondered all about also is just uh this uh in fact this is this is part of what kind of made me slap my forehead <laughs> slap my forehead i should say in the in the in reading this story and and that was just this is quite close to cairo i mean it could be like almost in the suburbs right Yes, it's about 13 miles or so south of Cairo, I believe. Yeah. Um, so really close to a highly developed area, you know. But Egypt takes extraordinary pride in their archaeological heritage, and they've they've protected a lot of this area from development. But but the development and expansion of Cairo has definitely affected some of the archaeology there. Um, but they have a very very strong tradition, and they recognize the value of it for tourism and um, and everything. And so I think you know some of this is protected, but it's still uh, not protected from from looters who are, are able to get into some of these sites. Yeah, and I mean it frankly surprises me. I guess that, that that's what I was going to say about you know slapping my forehead. Is I, I was sort of thinking to myself, archaeology has been really going big over there for what a century or more now, um, and. And and I, it it kind of surprises me this hadn't turned up before. Yes, and that's that's true everywhere. You know, I get that a lot of people people say to me, "Haven't you dug up everything?" <laughs> and the fact is that there's there's still a lot more out there. And even in you know developed places, even in Burlington, Vermont, we find archaeological sites buried under fill that have been kind of forgotten about. And you'd think they'd been destroyed by development, um, but they're well preserved. And uh, and it's it's just remarkable. And, and particularly in this area that's received so much attention. And, and of course, Egypt is, uh, is uh, I don't know, is, is it the world capital of archaeology, just in terms of, uh, you know, so much stuff has been found I there? I think so, because it just captures the imagination, and part of it is the monumental architecture, the pyramids that just stand out so much, whereas much archaeology around the world you just can't see on the surface. It's, it's buried and requires a lot more exploration and and survey work to identify the sites, whereas these these sites really stand out and are and are obvious to everybody as, as being significant and, and, and important you know, monumental works. Now you said you're not an Egyptologist. What, I'm curious, what is your field? I, I work uh, generally here in the northeastern North America and also in the Caribbean. You know, and I try I, see. To, I try to balance it seasonally, but I end up you know going to the Caribbean sometimes in the summer where. Uh, where I'd like to be here in, in New England. Yeah, <laughs> you got to work that out a little bit. It sounds like to me. <laughs> but, well, but the important thing I think uh, to recognize is we have archaeology right here in Vermont. Um, we don't have pyramids, but we have an exciting 12,500-year history of Native American archaeology. That you know, each site is is kind of non-renewable window into the past, just like this one in Egypt tells us a little bit more that we didn't know before. 
It's it, it is a it's a fascinating field. I mean, uh, I I would almost want to say I, I could dig it, but no, I won't go there. <laughs> um, the uh, but I mean, and and you and you get to learn. I think which is a good lesson for a lot of Vermont residents uh, that uh, sure enough there there was a pretty significant culture here predating the arrival of Europeans. Right, and I think it's it's our job to protect it, to learn from it. Um, you know, just like they're doing they're doing in Egypt, and uh, it's an important it's an important part of our history. Well, I'd say you know just a world's worldwide hats off to the field of archaeology. Uh, today because of this amazing discovery that's uh, that really I, I know you're excited as you said at the beginning to have archaeology in the news and, and absolutely and go ahead and enjoy that excitement it's a great it's a great day for the field so well thanks very much and thanks for having me on already nice chatting with you all right take care and uh hey folks out there we got a minute or so to go or maybe two here uh, if you want to call in and uh, chat about uh this amazing archaeological find it's uh, there's a, it's on the uh, National Geographic website i gather that it'll be in an uh featured in an upcoming issue of the print magazine and uh what an exciting thing i mean this is uh it's worth going online and looking at uh, uh this national geographic piece it was carried on apple news today the um uh, the the picture is just stunning in terms of what has been preserved in this ancient tomb tomb uh, four four thousand four hundred year old tomb discovered at Saqqara, Egypt, is the headline. The stunning tomb displays clues to the life of a royal official, with more discoveries likely. And they are they are actually saying that within this tomb there are I think five uh, slots, sort of where they haven't some of them haven't been opened yet, and they're hoping to find more more treasures and more evidence about the culture of those that era. Uh, four thousand. So we're talking about basically uh, three times, uh, uh, you know, we're 2,000 years roughly after the after the beginning of the common era, the birth of Christ. Uh, multiply that by three, and you get an idea uh, how old <laughs> how old this thing is. And then when you look at the picture, and it looks like uh, you know it's as well preserved as the Vatican. You kind of, as I say, I slapped my forehead and said, "Holy cow, that's amazing." Hey, we're going to go to a bottom of the hour news break on the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV FM and AM, and we'll be back very shortly. The Mad River Valley is a winter playground. Jumpstart your day in the valley here at the Warren Store with coffee, a breakfast sandwich, and freshly baked treats. Or wind down with us later with one of our signature sandwiches and hearty grab-and-go meals. Make the Warren Store your base camp for your adventures here in the Mad River Valley. The wood stove is cranking, everyone is happy, and we have everything you need. The Warren Store, we're funky, friendly, and almost world famous. Listen to The Dave Graham Show in your time at WDEVradio.com. Click on the program tab, then Dave Graham Show, to listen to the podcast of past shows. Now back to Dave Live on WDEV-FM and AM. Yeah, our podcast, uh, a lot of people tell me they like it a lot and listen to the show other times a day than the 9 to 11 slot when we're on the air live here from WDEV's studio in Waterbury. And we do want to thank the Warren Store, the friendly, funky, and almost world-famous Warren Store for their kind support and sponsorship of our podcast. Uh, I want to go to our next guest here on the Dave Graham Show, somebody I've been uh, wanting to get on the air here for at least a couple weeks now. You may remember back, uh, I think it was two weeks ago or so, the Burlington Free Press had a story about uh, somebody in Burlington, I believe the man's name was Gus Klein, uh, reporting that a flag that he had been flying in his yard 
uh, Trump 2020 said on it. Uh, he's clearly a Trump supporter. Uh, had the flag burned by some act of vandalism. And uh, the Free Press wrote a story. It, it uh, made news around the state. And then next thing we know, Dave Sunderland, the uh, former chair of the Vermont Republican Party, is saying that maybe uh, when these kinds of things happen, they should be described as a hate crime under Vermont law. Now, hate crimes traditionally have been uh, have been enhanced. They call for enhanced penalties for someone who commits a crime that is uh, can be demonstrated to have been motivated by race or other forms of bigotry against uh, uh, you know uh, racial minorities or uh, sexual minorities, uh, gays and and uh, transgendered folks. Uh, you know, ethnic and religious minorities. You think of uh, sometimes violence against against Jewish folks. Uh, and so uh, Mr. Sunderland was saying we should have a uh, hate crime enhancement for this kind of activity as well. And uh, I wanted to get uh, Kevin Christie, who is the chair of the State Human Rights Commission, on the air uh, to uh, talk to us about his thoughts on this as well as maybe a couple other topics if we have time. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. And by the way, I want to mention, folks, too, that you are also still a state representative from uh, the White Ri- from White River Junction, correct? Correct. And uh, when when did you assume the chair? I was trying to remember just now of the. Uh, it, it was February okay. of uh, this year. Right, right. And and you had previously served as a member of the commission. Is that right? Uh, yes. Um, I finished up in two thousand one. Okay. And uh, and and back at it now as chair. So that's uh, uh, that, that. Congratulations on that appointment. That's that's uh, that. I'm sure that's that feels like an honor. It also <laughs> adds to your workload. But uh, <laughs> uh, you've been a busy guy for a long time, and I'm sure just a little more busy. Uh, just you can handle it. <laughs> so <there> you, <laughs> well, thanks, Dave. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, but I, I did want to check in with you on this question. Uh, and and we were chatting the other day. I get the impression that you do not believe. Uh, you do not believe uh, that a hate crimes in- enhancement uh, uh, is warranted here. Is that right? Well, it, um, I-, I think that in this particular instance, mm-hmm. um, we're looking more at a um, a criminal offense, right? You know, versus um, you know a a civil offense hmm. um, to the extent that. Uh, those those civil rights of uh, the protected classes mm-hmm. is is pretty clearly defined. Yeah, uh, yep. and uh, specific to uh, people who uh, have, for whatever reason, uh, been. Um, abused over time yeah yeah uh in a number of different ways so uh, so, so basically uh, the traditional hate crime generally implicates civil rights right and yeah. and and yeah. you're saying that this this hate crime uh or rather this crime of, of, of somebody burning a flag uh that a person had displayed expressing his or his political beliefs uh that that does not uh, implicate civil rights is that is that the idea uh correct because you know it um it it infringed on the gentleman's or i should say the family's uh property mm-hmm. um and 
I'm not sure how the uh, uh, the state prosecutor is going to handle um, uh, the case, but my understanding is they did find uh, the people who actually perpetrated, uh, you know, the actual crime. Yep. In fact, that's what, that's what brought it back to my mind and reminded me again that I wanted to call you up and, and get your thoughts about this uh, because there was an arrest uh, last week of two teenagers. Uh, I believe they have not been identified because of their right. ages. Yeah. And, and uh, but the, I think they're in their mid in their mid teens somewhere, and they the police the police say that they are the uh, the, the people who did this uh, this arson or or vandalism or whatever you want right. to call it when a flag yeah. gets burned like this. And um, now let me let me give you a little pushback here, if I could. And, and I'm just curious about this. I I haven't really I don't have a super firm position on this thing myself I, I i just i have more questions than answers which is mm-hmm. often the case on many many things but um so if we burn a flag here and it's expressing a political belief then not covered by a hate crimes enhancement uh another flag i can think of would be like a rainbow flag uh basically celebrating the fact that uh you know the folks putting it up. Maybe the people, perhaps in a similar situation, they would be living in the house. They'd put have a flagpole in the yard, and they would put up a rainbow flag, and it would indicate there that they are gay or that they are you know support uh, you know um, sexual minorities, etc. Um, and somebody comes along and burns it. That is that a hate crime? That's that's where the line gets really blurry. Hmm. Yeah, you know, in in all honesty, I, I I won't purport to have an exact you know like answer. You know, a lot I think it on it's it's on a case by case uh, type of uh, scenario when you take something that specific. Yeah, you know yeah. where there where there is a flag. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that really gets blurry. Let's say there's a Black Lives Matter flag. Right. And it's flying on someone's property. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know if that person is of any ethnicity specifically. Yeah. Other than a supporter of Black Lives Matter. That's really interesting. The person living in the who actually put the flag up could very well be white or whatever. And exactly. Because a lot of <laughs> a lot of white folks support the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, and that's that you know that's a great thing. And so here, this person puts up the flag, and and it, and the flag if the flag were burned, uh, <laughs> wow. Now we're into, yeah. Okay, you know, you see what, you know, and so like, so if it's on my lawn, yep, is it treated as a hate crime? But if it's on your lawn, is it treated as vandalism? Well, (laughs) we should be we should be clear with folks. uh, Kevin, Coach Christie. I use the nickname Coach a lot, which is great because you've been working in that in that field for a long time in your community. Uh, you you are African American, and so I, I suppose this this could be a question as to whether 
the burning of a Black Lives Matter flag. I'm white, and if we're on my, you know, in front, posted in my front yard, uh, maybe that would be treated differently than if it were, if we were flying on a pole in your front yard because you are African American, right? Right. You know that. And the thing is, I'm not. You know, it. You can see how complicated. Yeah. It's it, it, you know. You know that well. That's why I love my job as a talk radio host because I get to ask people complicated questions, and we ch- we can chew it on them on the air for a while. It's always a, right, right. A fun, you know, fun exercise. So, and I hadn't thought of that until yeah. you know you you started to mention you know the other types of flag. Yeah, the rainbow flag or the yeah, and and uh, and of course you know some people in Vermont who support Donald Trump feel like they are very much in the minority, and and you know you constantly hear from from conservatives that they. You know they're being picked on. They're, you know, they're like the world's biggest victim these days. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I, I sometimes, frankly, uh, yeah, I just did chortle about it because I, you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, let's let's hear what uh, Bruce from Essex has to say. We uh, we have a caller in line. Good morning, Bruce. And good morning, both of you. So let's not. I don't want to make this hypothetical. Here's yeah. a real situation. Yep. We have uh, we've had a Black Lives Matter uh, yard sign on our lawn okay mm-hmm. yep first time it was defaced and, uh, and and by the way just to be clear you are white correct yeah 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 and uh it was defaced yep. uh and the people came to us it was in you know, their teenage kids uh who thought it was a big yuck they also put you know covered it with uh, uh duct tape and had a uh uh, website you could go to, which was pornographic, but the people came and they apologized, and and I says, well, take them to Rokeby Museum. I used to be at Rokeby, as you might know, and yep. and uh, you know have them a learning experience. But t- twice since then, uh, once our sign was just torn down and thrown in the weeds, mm-hmm. and a third time it was stolen. Huh. So you know. I don't consider it a, a hate crime per se. Um, whether I'm white or black, I don't know. I'm white, so I can't deny that. Yeah. But I, I, it was essentially to me, it was a crime. Somebody stole our property. Have the and, police been involved? Huh? Have you spoken with the police about it? No, we haven't. But yeah. We've even thought about getting another one and then staking it out overnight. Yeah, there are some <laughs> cameras or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> They well, well, Bruce, yeah. Bruce, you, you know, I, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, your, your, um, your empathy and concern, you know, for uh, the cause, and, you know, I guess, you know, when we when we get to these situations, you know, there's a certain amount of ignorance and hate that's involved in in some of these issues. But I think because the law is, is pretty specific, you know, we, we need to kind of compartmentalize where we can because, you know, my personal feeling is, you know, we, we should bring, you know, the full power of the law, you know, forward. You know, the, I know Dave... Uh, kind of chuckled a little bit when he said maybe the you know the game cam or some kind of cam from the house you know on on the sign for a while might not be a bad idea well sometimes how some of these perpetrators of 
of this kind of action are caught is by camera. You know, yeah. either, yeah. you know, you, my wife no. actually thought about that. And, yeah. and one other thing we did, the story got picked up by Channel 5. They came over and interviewed me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, they interviewed yep. Jane Williamson and down at Rokeby. Uh, it was Jack, whatever his name is. He used to be on Channel 3. So, um, mm-hmm. And the way I pitched it, though, is I wanted it to, I want it to be a learning moment. And, you know, we have our suspicions oh, yeah. who may yeah. have done it, uh, yeah. but we, we don't have the proof. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're look. Yeah, you know, we're going to get another sign and put it up again, and who knows what we'll do. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. My wife even said we ought to get one of those cams, you know. And, <laughs> and yeah. but the conversation—it's the talking about this thing that becomes important. And and we didn't hide uh, or anything. I brought mm-hmm. it up in a setting where Channel Five picked it up and did the story, mm-hmm. and I think it got some attention. And uh, it's happened other places, and. And, um, you know, uh, I, you know, so I understand, I, I understand the issue. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to say it was a hate crime, but it, mm-hmm. it, it was a crime. That's yeah. what I think. Yes, I, I agree. And, and Bruce, I, I think you're right in the sense that, you know, the more that people talk about situations that are hateful, and disrespectful and disconcerting, you know, the better off we all are. Absolutely. Uh, because we never know when that little bit of understanding might come, you know, out of one of those conversations, either with another neighbor or with someone who didn't, wasn't clear about their feelings, but yep. maybe that conversation helped them, you know. So, well, all I can say is stay tuned, huh? All oh, right. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, I wanted to uh, change the topic up here, Kevin, a little bit, because uh, one thing bothered me about this burst of uh, publicity in, in this announcement from the, the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I'm not sure if you uh, caught the fact that PETA had come out with a, a, a list of preferred phrases to replace things that it found... Uh, disrespectful toward animals and so uh you're not supposed to say grab a bull by the horns anymore you're supposed to say grab a flower by the thorns uh did you hear about this when it was first out a couple weeks ago uh yes yes i did and and um you're not supposed to to say uh, beat a dead horse anymore you you're supposed to say feed a fed horse and I kind of I kind of like that one only from the perspective that it, it kind of serves the same purpose linguistically because basically what beating a dead horse is is you're continuing to do something you don't need to do anymore. It's uh, mm, mm. and if you feed a fed horse, I guess I don't know. Most horses I've known will keep eating for a long, long time, so maybe that's not directly parallel. <laughs> but but uh, uh, and 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 all sorts of other uh, all sorts of other things. Uh, um, you know, you, you, and and I don't want anybody to be catty about this conversation. You know, because mm-hmm. I'm not do- well, I'm, I'm not dogging it here on the Dave Graham well, show. Well, Dave, you know, I I think, you know, and uh, again, you know, like like you said, you know, not to try to get uh, uh, too theoretical, you know, in the in the discussion. But when you think about how we express ourselves. Mm-hmm. If we have a tendency to express ourselves with respect, 
mm-hmm. and kind and kindness. Yep. And fairness. Mm-hmm. That's a much better place to be at. And 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 to me, it does not constitute or equate to, um, you know, any kind of strength or virility or anything like that. It's a question of decorum. Yeah. Uh, It's a question of, um, you know, just civility. Um, You know, and I, I think that, you know, even though it seems a little foreign to us, when I when I put it into that context, I said, you know, if we if we're going to turn the corner, you know, on uh, being more respectful and more civil, I think we almost have to try to do it in every walk of life. Hmm. This is this is interesting because one of the questions I want to ask you here was that uh, you know speaking with greater civility and great and with greater care for others really. Is something that a lot of a lot of concern and work and you know magazine articles etc. have gone into this vis-a-vis of uh, you know people saying really shouldn't use the n-word anymore. People saying we really should change our language around uh, people with disabilities and the way we we refer to people with disabilities. Uh, and certainly you know I, I I grew up hearing words that were used almost as like pronouns for women. Uh, that I just don't hear anymore because you mm-hmm. know they were it was decided they were really sexist, mm-hmm. and, and and so all these different human groups have been working pretty hard over the course of most of my adult life, I think, mm-hmm. to try to uh, to change the language in a way that makes uh, makes life more inclusive, at least life as reflected by language and mm-hmm. so on. Right. And, and and I guess my worry here, if I, you know, I mean, my first reaction to this stuff was was to laugh, and I thought my my wife actually made the best point I've heard, and I said she she said something like, uh, "How do you offend an animal when the animal can't understand what you're saying?" <laughs> 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 and, but 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 I, more seriously, I, you know, I sort of wonder whether folks who have been struggling to work on uh, changing the language uh, with which we describe human beings. Uh, and and that's a still a pretty fresh thing. In fact, continues today. Yeah. Um, how do they feel about? I mean, are, are we sort of dismissing the seriousness of that when we start to say that uh, you know don't we should replace don't be a guinea pig with don't be yeah. the, don't be the test tube? Yeah. Well, well, here, uh, okay. Let's let's jump into it a little bit yep. and think about and and this if if we think about this whole civil tongue mm-hmm. uh, and, and you, you're a language person. You've been a news person as long as I've known you and probably longer than, than that. And my, so you're, you're a student of language. Sure. I and, always say my, tool, my toolbox is full of words. <laughs> you got it, my friend. And, and, and so when I think about that, you know, for all of us, I mean, because it doesn't matter, you know, what, who you are or what you've done, you know the way we were brought up. There would always, there could always be something in our language that might be offensive to someone. Yeah. Yep. So, so that kind of being being said, you know, having all of these uh, new uh, inputs as far as trying to clean up our language in a way, so that the likelihood you know, isn't as great 
that you might offend, you know, you know, a fellow person, human being. Uh, but I mean, we, that, where, no, go where, ahead. Where do you draw the line here, though? I mean, somebody joked to me the other day and said they're going to they're going to form people for the ethical treatment of minerals, and and you can't describe somebody as stoned anymore if they've been smoking marijuana. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I I guess you know there, there is. There is a limit, you know, I, I, I guess it's at some point. But, but I, I think, you know, again, it's a context yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we should know the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and, and where those lines are. And, and I think that internally we might chuckle, you know, at, at certain things. Yeah. But, but we would hope we would never chuckle about the things we shouldn't sure yeah you know and 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 so you know none of us are perfect and we're all trying to get you know better at just being human beings yeah. so it, it's it's like a never-ending battle you know yeah. um it, it, go ahead there's always something new under the sun that's <laughs> on this yeah. stuff anyway yeah, I, I, I think, I, and I, you're right. I, I love the language. I love words, uh, and and I and I find it all pretty fascinating. At the same time as being, uh, I think the language is you know often hilarious. I mean, George Carlin made yeah. made a career out of oh yeah saying yeah. things like, "Why do some words disappear? Have a happy, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I haven't the slightest, right. you know, and and uh, and so." Yeah, I, I, I do. I I think it's definitely a worthwhile dis- worthwhile discussion, and I, I don't know whether it's a proper thing to do to just draw the line around human beings and leave animals to whatever. Hey, uh, well, Kevin. Well, Cre- well, Kevin- well, just just real quick, Dave. Yep. You know, I think when see if if we kind of treat everything the same in a way. Yeah. You know, as far as how we treat it, respectfully, as indiv- in as individuals. I got to go, Kevin. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, uh, thank you so much. It's really good talking with you. This is great. Uh, that's about it for the Dave Graham Show. Stay tuned for Common Sense Radio here on WDEV FM and AM.